Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, September 18th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the CDC is reporting more people in the hospital with COVID-19 and a rise in cases of RSV. We talk to a pediatric infectious disease expert. Then congressional gridlock on the spending budget could have significant effects on mothers and children in poverty. Plus, who should influence what colleges teach? A recent report reveals most Americans say not the government. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Medical experts in the state are urging Mississippians to take precautions. Hospitalizations related to respiratory illnesses are on the rise. Last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a warning to southeastern states regarding a sharp uptick in RSV cases. The University of Mississippi Medical Center says they're seeing a rise in people coming to the hospital with COVID-19. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is Professor of Pediatric Infectious Disease at UMMC. She shares more about the double threat of COVID-19 and RSV in pediatric patients. SARS-CoV-2 tends to be um, the worst in patients, of course, who are at the extremes of age, um, people who are certainly um, over the age of uh, 65, and also um, infants tend to suffer the most of the consequences of SARS-CoV-2, and in addition to that, usually children with pre-existing illnesses also tend to suffer more severe manifestations of SARS-CoV-2. In terms of um, RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, we actually are seeing um, an increase um, in those cases um, as well. And in fact, the CDC issued a health alert um, just very recently um, notifying clinicians and providers um, in the Southeast in particular that there was a significant um, uptick in the number of cases. And RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, is a um, respiratory virus that is in pediatrics quite severe in um, the very, very young and particularly in infants. Um, And in terms of um, influenza, we haven't quite seen the, um, you know, cases or dramatic uptick just yet um, for flu season, but that is expected to come very soon. With COVID and uh, children, are the symptoms any different than adults? Is the severity any different than adults? Do you have to put children on ventilators? 
So um, it depends on the age of, of the child. In general, the um, very, very young children are the ones who are going to um, suffer from more severe acute COVID um, in a more um, severe fashion. Um, we published a study um, with CDC um, last year that actually showed if infants do contract um, SARS-CoV-2, that they will, could, you know, become quite sick with it. And they could definitely um, require respiratory support, i.e. ventilatory support. In general, anyone who has a pre-existing um, health condition, um, that includes asthma, um, you know, obesity, um, diabetes, a variety of other, you know, neurodevelopmental conditions, for example, um, they um, may be more likely to suffer more severe manifestations of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And also, um, reviews of recent data from CDC suggest that sometimes there are um, children or adults who are not known to have pre-existing conditions who do suffer for much more forms, uh, much more severe forms of SARS-CoV-2 infection um, than one would expect, given the lack of perhaps, um, you know, pre-existing conditions, and, and no one quite knows why or who those people are going to be. Um, so, in general, um, it's the extremes of age who may suffer the most severe forms of the disease or those with pre-existing conditions, but there are um, cases in which we have previously healthy children or adults who suffer much more severe manifestations of the disease, and we cannot always explain that. We know that there are folks who don't like vaccines, don't plan to be vaccinated or have their children vaccinated. Is that a concern? Yes, it's a great concern, um, given what we were just talking about in terms of who um, is more likely to end up with more severe disease in the hospital and across the board, for certainly for SARS-CoV-2, for influenza, um, um, because of the availability of, um, of vaccines. Uh, we know that the patients who end up in the hospital are more likely not to have been um, vaccinated. So that is of great concern to me because we do know that these respiratory viruses are increasing in prevalence. Um, you know, and they are um, in circulation. And of course, we know now that the difference between now and a few years ago is that we have, you know, tools in our um, toolbox that we can use to um, prevent severe illness or even infection. And um, vaccination is the way to do that. Um, and also, again, for RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, this is the first year that we're going to have not one but two options for a monoclonal antibody or passive immunization for infants. And in addition to that, in a couple of weeks, um, it'll be expected that we'll have availability of RSV vaccine um, for pregnant women. And the vaccination of pregnant women with RSV vaccine allows the mother to develop a immune response that will not only protect her, but also will protect um, her baby, um, you know, with the transfer of immunity um, prior to the baby's birth and even um, potentially through breastfeeding if the mother chooses to breastfeed thereafter. So we have um, availability of vaccines essentially for all three of the big three of the, you know, triple demic that everyone's talking about now. Um, so it would be a great concern to me if people did not avail themselves of these preventative measures um, because each of these diseases can result in very severe um, consequences um, in in the population, as, as I just highlighted. Is RSV deadly? Yes, RSV is deadly in the very young and in the very um, old. And so the RSV vaccine that we were talking about um, in terms of uh, ACIP licensing for pregnant women 
um, is actually going to be very important in reducing um, infant deaths. Um, we actually participated in a multi-center study that was um, published a few weeks ago in JAMA Network Open, um, working with CDC, and looking at um, 2022 data, um, those um, infants who were actually hospitalized with RSV were actually, um, many of them were actually healthy in term. So RSV is a disease that actually can be deadly to infants, um, even those who are um, healthy um, and term. And so it's important to do what you can to protect um, your baby from this particular disease. And the RSV vaccine um, that um, is actually licensed in in the elderly right now is also going to be important in terms of reducing severe illness and death in, in those who are older. Um, so it is important to continue to talk to your provider, continue to, um, you know, uh, be proactive in terms of hand hygiene um, and making sure one's in, you know, well-ventilated areas. And if transmission of various viruses increases significantly, um, masking is um, an option um, that may be considered as well. Um, but we have all these other preventative measures um, that we also um, can employ this year to um, combat the um, forthcoming triple demic. That's Dr. Charlotte Hobbs. She's a professor of pediatric infectious disease at UMMC. Coming up, a congressional gridlock problem on the spending budget could affect mothers and children in poverty in this state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. An ongoing congressional debate about the nation's spending could mean major cuts to a program that helps families get food. President Joe Biden is asking Congress to approve $1.4 billion of emergency funding to continue supporting the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children known as WIC. Due to rising food costs, WIC has reportedly exceeded its budget and needs extra funds to continue serving those enrolled. Some Republican lawmakers are hoping to instead cut spending in the final version of the budget. According to Mississippi Department of Health, 85,000 Mississippians are enrolled in WIC and 65,000 are actively participating. We are a rural state that lacks a lot of job opportunities in in pockets of the state. So having access uh, to this additional food source, particularly for young children, uh, is critically important. Mississippi is also one of the states, uh, a state with the highest infant mortality rate. Uh, So I I can't express how important having uh, this food substance for families that are struggling and uh, for children in in high poverty uh, homes and and communities is for making sure that children are able to grow in you know, babies are able to to be healthy and to grow into healthy uh, young people and adults. 
WIC is also an important revenue source for farmers in the state uh, in terms of providing resources, fresh, fresh uh, produce. And uh, we just getting in, you know, really getting the hang of that. But the ability to get fresh produce into the hands of uh, of these families and for these children. Uh, so, in a time uh, where poverty is on the rise across the country, and as high as food is now, <laughs> anybody been to the grocery store lately? Having this additional resource to make sure that you can get the food that families need is, is critically important. So we would hope that uh, as Congress uh, deliberates the farm bill and, and other programmatic areas that, you know, we don't balance or try to balance the budget on the back of poor families and babies. Uh, so it is our hope, and we will be working hard to uh, make sure that members of Congress are, uh, you know, understand the need and that state and the need, particularly in states like Mississippi. Our state lawmakers, they're doing a few meetings here and there, but they'll go back into their big session this upcoming spring around the New Year's time to respond to these issues, like you said, of Mississippians in poverty. What do you hope to see from our lawmakers when they return back into session in January? Well, I'm hoping that after this electoral season uh, that our lawmakers will will respond to the people who send to elect them, uh, just about on any issue that we have talked about, when the citizens of the state uphold, they are fully supportive of things like Medicaid expansion and, 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 and funding for child care and early education and for, you know, food, food for, for struggling families. There's a terrible disconnect when these folks that are elected get down here to Jackson. We are hopeful, however, we will find folks whose hearts are softer toward the folks who are struggling the hardest in the state. Uh, So we are hopeful, but we know uh, that with that hope has to come work. So we will continue our advocacy activities and trying to shine light on, uh, you know, what they're doing at the state capitol. So we have hope. We all, If we didn't have hope uh, in this state, we wouldn't have much. So, but hope without work uh, uh, is doesn't equal up to much. Uh, before I let you go today, elaborate on that a little bit. What disconnect happens there? It becomes partisan politics, uh, and it, it becomes, you know, whatever one group is for, the other group has to absolutely be opposed to uh, for no reason at all. Uh, and there's, there's really not a democratic process when it gets to the Capitol. And a lot of what happens is that the folks back home don't know what they are doing in Jackson. That's the job we have before us 
is to make sure that there is transparency. So that is what I mean when I'm talking about um, the dis- disconnect between what they are elected to do and what they come down to Jackson and, in fact, do. That's Olita Fitzgerald, Southern Regional Director for the Children's Defense Fund, speaking with MPB's Lacey Alexander. Coming up, state officials across the nation are asserting more sway over higher education. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Urban studies, German literature, women's studies, and anthropology. These are a few of the undergraduate majors targeted by State Auditor Shad White in a social media campaign last week. White announced his office is working on a report about how the state spends money on colleges and universities. He wrote institutions should stop investing in degrees in garbage fields and put more money into degrees that supercharge Mississippi's economy. The suggestion is in line with a growing influence of state government over education policy. In a bipartisan finding, Americans oppose substantial government influence over what's taught in colleges. That's Emma Petit, senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. She spoke with our Michael Guidry about this trend. Amid a wave of state-level interventions in education like Florida's Stop Woke Act and a number of critical race theory bans, Petit with the Chronicle and Langer Research Associates wanted to find out what Americans think about who and what should shape what colleges teach. So we asked people, and I was pretty surprised by the finding that, you know, minorities of Democrats and Republicans think that the government should have substantial influence over the curriculum. It was a bipartisan finding. Um, Democrats and Republicans were pretty close on their answers. So one expert that I spoke with said that this could be interpreted as a knowing rejection by people across the ideological spectrum of the type of law that Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and the state's Republican majority legislature, along with several other states, have passed, um, including Mississippi. But I will also note that experts cautioned me that it should the if the poll was asked a different way, if the question was phrased more about a specific piece of legislation, the results could be different. So, hmm. so the poll shouldn't be interpreted as Americans are broadly rejecting every single piece of legislation that Republican legislators are putting forward about critical race theory and the like. But it does indicate that Americans generally seem to not want their government to have a great deal or good amount of influence on college curriculum. And you mentioned this is the responses were were pretty we're pretty bipartisan. So they, they've got to the same place. Um, I guess my question now is, uh, in speaking to higher ed professionals, even maybe even looking through uh, the, the survey results, are the paths to those conclusions uh, any different? That's a great question. And I think that that's something we hope to dig into further as the poll shows us generally, you know, how people are feeling, but not necessarily why they're feeling that way. 
That being said, I did talk to a couple of experts about why they think Democrats and Republicans responded certain ways. So Democrats and Republicans generally agree on the state government's role, but Democrats were more likely to favor influence by professors and also by students on curriculum. And Republicans were more likely to favor influence by business and industry leaders. So that kind of tracks with how we think about those political parties, you know, Republicans um, respecting and wanting more influence from business leaders and from industry leaders and Democrats placing more trust in the institutional expertise of professors. But one um, expert that I spoke with pointed out to me that perhaps even if people do have some misgivings about what's taught on college campuses, either on the right or on their left, we're facing right now just a general loss of trust in American institutions and including in the government. And that's especially true um, for folks on the right. Um, As of 2022, uh, 9% of Republicans and Republican, Republican-leaning independents said they trust the government to do what is right all or most of the time, compared with 29% of their Democrat counterparts. So there's pretty low trust in the government generally. And even if you think maybe there are some things to fix about college curriculum, it does make a certain amount of sense that you wouldn't necessarily put trust in the government to fix those problems. So that's one potential as to why Republicans um, and Democrats in general are not thrilled to have a huge amount of influence being placed in the hands of the government. In your reporting, you speak to a a lot of experts, um, people who look at the intersection between politics and academia. Um, And so in those conversations, um, has there been any any analysis or maybe even any like hypotheses as to why leaders in state government are are taking this course of action when there doesn't seem to be an appetite for it? Well, I will say that, you know, one expert did caution me in interpreting these results that it's possible if you asked about a specific bill like the so-called Stop Woke Act in Florida, that perhaps would be an appetite for it if people were asked about specific legislation. So that aside, um, I think that higher education has long been criticized by people on the right as being overly liberal. Um, We do know that professors who make up higher education institutions across the country generally lean left and I believe um, higher ed actually employs like a higher number of liberals than a lot of other professions. And so that's been a concern that has been a consistent critique from people on the right. And lawmakers will say that they're trying to counter um, this leftward tilt, this sort of ideology pushing. And that's what they see as kind of the motivating factor into why they've introduced these sorts of bills. I will also point out that groups like the Heritage Foundation and the Manhattan and Goldwater Institutes, other sort of organizations, have also uh, been very interested in pursuing these sorts of bills and, um, you know, popularizing them among the American public. Uh, In terms of the experts I spoke with as to um, why these bills are popular or why they're happening now, I think there are a range of explanations. I think that some lawmakers, um, you know, might be genuinely concerned about this liberal tilt that they're hearing about from conservative media outlets and from, you know, Fox News running stories about student protests and anti-platforming campaigns. 
I think that it's very possible that they see that and they want to erect some guardrails. I think it's possible that, and you know, in, in Ron DeSantis's case, that he thinks that this is a popular um, platform to campaign on in his run for president. I also think it's possible that the lawmakers that are advancing these bills are seeing their country change or be criticized in ways that they don't like. And this is a way to um, perhaps erect some types of guardrails that they see around this legislation. But yeah, it, it, I guess it remains to be seen in terms of how exactly popular these bills are with the general public. And I will just say a lot of these bills have been introduced, um, but in terms of higher education, a slim number of those have actually become law compared to the general body of all the bills that have actually been put forward in state legislatures. Emma Pettit is a senior reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. Emma, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and uh, explaining the study and your reporting. Thanks so much for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.